All right. Take your Bible, please, and uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 1, the book of Acts chapter 1. Have you ever been so caught up in a story that just when you think you know where it's heading, it takes an unforeseen turn in a whole new direction? Uh, In Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, for example, I remember being so engrossed in the first part of that trilogy, The Fellowship of the Ring, that when it ended where it did, I was simultaneously surprised by the unexpected abruptness, yet excited for what was coming next. With great skill, obviously, Tolkien led the reader through one epic adventure to another, masterfully revealing how each individual scene fit purposefully into the greater picture. I say this because this morning we will begin a new sermon series in the New Testament book uh, of Acts, which in ways similar to what I've just described, opens with something unexpected and world-changing. Something that caught the individuals involved by complete surprise. Most of us are well aware of the story of Acts, at least vaguely, but to the people who lived at that time in that place, those early followers of Jesus, it probably seemed like God's work on earth was moving in one way when suddenly it took off in a whole new direction. As we will see today, in a matter of mere moments, they went from conversing with the resurrected Jesus to being commissioned by Jesus for a task they were not at all anticipating. And Jesus would not be with them as he, had, as he had been. Instead, they would come to know and rely upon the third person of the triune Godhead, the Holy Spirit himself. I have long wanted to preach a series specifically on the Holy Spirit, and perhaps at some point I will. I also love preaching on the church, as you know, exploring with you what the Bible teaches about the church, about the people of the church and the uh, purpose of the church and how the New Testament resets the priorities for the church. So weeks ago, when I began thinking about our next sermon series, about which part of the Bible to go through next, uh, God led me to Acts, and interestingly, the book of Acts touches on both of these subjects at once. On one hand, it is about about the Holy Spirit and the Spirit's role in redemption, while on the other, it is about the church and the church's role in this age of the Spirit in which we now live. From the very beginning of the book, including today's text, we learn right away what Acts is all about. The book of Acts is about the work of the Spirit of God through the witness of the people of God. That's going to be the the 
key sentence, the thesis statement that's going to hang over this entire study. The book of Acts is about the work of the Spirit of God through the witness of the people of God. So I want to read this with you. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, here it is. Here is the statement, the sentence that frames the entire book of Acts. Verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This morning, I want to consider with you from this passage the aliveness of Jesus, the advancement of his kingdom, and the hope of his sure return. The aliveness of Jesus, the advancement of his kingdom, and the hope of his sure return. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time we have today in your word. We believe and know, we have experienced time and time again, that your word is life. There is power in your word. There is vitality in your word because your word is the breath of God. And so will you help us this morning to hear your voice from these pages? And, oh, Holy Spirit, when you will you... In, enable our receptivity to all that you have for us this morning and beyond. Help us to see Jesus again and to follow him more closely for his name's sake. Amen. With the very first verse... In the book of Acts, we learn that Luke, Luke is the author of the book of Acts. We learn that Luke, 
has been communicating with a man named Theophilus. In fact, Acts is essentially the continuation of the Gospel of Luke. For it, the Gospel of Luke, is likewise addressed to this same individual. We know very little about this man other than his name is of Greek origin. And in Luke's Gospel, he is addressed as most excellent Theophilus, suggesting perhaps that he was a man of some rank, an official of some sort. Whatever the case, whereas the Gospel of Luke details the life and earthly ministry of Jesus, the book of Acts tells what became of Christ's ministry even after he uh, ascended to heaven. John Stott comments, Jesus' ministry on earth, exercised personally and publicly, was followed by his ministry from heaven, exercised through his Holy Spirit by his apostles. Verses 2 and 3 point out that Jesus chose the apostles for this very thing. He had been with them through, or they had been with him throughout his ministry, and we're now told that Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering. Clearly, Luke is setting the stage for the book of Acts, reminding us, necessarily so, of the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. These men were with Jesus on the night of his betrayal and arrest. They knew uh, how he had been falsely accused and unjustly condemned. They were aware of the outright abuse of justice that occurred before the Jewish council and the, uh, the Roman prefect, prefect uh, Pontius Pilate. They were privy to all the beatings Jesus endured, all the lashings he suffered, and just the pure mockery of it all. Then came the cross, of course, on which Jesus, being completely innocent, was crucified like a common criminal. Nails were driven through his hands and feet, fixing him to that instrument of execution. For six long, excruciating hours, he hung suspended in unimaginable agony. The physical torment was unthinkable, the pain unbearable, as he felt every ounce of it coursing through every nerve. For every single breath he struggled, having to push down on the nails with all his weight just to fill his chest and lungs with quickly fleeting gasps of air. However, as painful as that was, and it was, the physical anguish paled in comparison to what was taking place spiritually. The Bible says that while Christ was on the cross, uh, Frank actually read this for us this morning out of Isaiah 53, one of the many passages that, that point to this reality. The Bible says that while Christ was on the cross, He was paying the price of our redemption from sin. It says that He bore our sins and in fact became sin. He who is without sin took ours upon himself. Though we are the fallen ones, he took the fall. So that we could be forgiven and restored to God. But when Jesus did this, when he bore sin in this way, it separated him from the Father because that's what sin does. 
Just as we are separated from God by our sins, the eternal Son was cut off from the Father for the first time ever as all of our sinfulness was placed upon the sinless one. The noonday sky became black as night while Jesus suffered for our sakes. Finally, mercifully, the perfect and perfectly just wrath of God was satisfied in full and the work of Christ on the cross was finished. Jesus committed his spirit to God, bowed his head, and gave his life. He died, and everyone present knew it. There was no doubt. They removed him from the cross. They prepared his body for burial. Then they laid him in a secure tomb. Jesus was no more as far as the world was concerned. His loved ones grieved. His enemies rejoiced. All hope had died because Jesus was dead. But death could not keep him. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead as he said he would, raised by the power of God. The tomb was found empty miraculously, and he began appearing in bodily form to people around Jerusalem. First, to some women who had gone to the tomb, then to the apostles who were hiding for fear of the Jews. He appeared to two forlorn disciples on the road to the city of Emmaus, explaining to them that indeed He is the one to whom the Scriptures point. He appeared to Thomas, who didn't believe in the resurrection at first, not until he saw and touched the scars on Jesus' body that evidenced His crucifixion and now proved that He was alive. He appeared to them on the beach one day. While they were fishing, He ate breakfast with them, spoke with them, ministered to them. Not only this, 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus also appeared to more than 500 people at once, people like you and me who no doubt told even more people all that they had seen and heard. In fact, when Paul is, is uh, referencing that in 1 Corinthians 15, he's essentially saying, if you don't believe me, talk to the hundreds of other people who saw the resurrected Christ. So when Luke says that Jesus presented himself alive by many proofs, he did. He came to us, identified with us, lived among us, died for us, and was raised to new life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ makes all the difference in the world, and it made all the difference in the lives of these few men mentioned here by Luke. They had seen him live, die, and be raised to new life, he was speaking with them now about the kingdom of God, telling them in verses 4 and 5 to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit whom the Father had promised. Soon they would be baptized with the Spirit 
who would empower them in ways they hadn't even imagined, hear this, because the advancement of Christ's kingdom would not occur by their might, but by the power of the Spirit of God. So at that point, at this point, Luke moves from those introductory words in verses 1 through 5. Basically, those first five verses serve as a recap to what Luke has told Theophilus at the end of the Gospel of Luke. And now he moves to verse 6 which finds Jesus gathered with his disciples just before his ascension. Uh, They were no doubt processing all that had recently occurred in the days and weeks since his resurrection. And all that Jesus had said to them. And maybe they were sensing that something big is about to happen. So they asked, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now they're thinking of an earthly kingdom. Notice. Like us at times, they view their view was short-sighted as they thought primarily of the here and now. They'd been under foreign rule for centuries, and for generations, the people of Israel longed for a deliverer, someone who would rise up and defeat their enemies and restore their nation. Maybe this was the time, they thought. All that Jesus had already done in their midst and before their eyes likely persuaded them that their, oh yes, finally, our national political aspirations will soon be realized. But Jesus had something else in mind. See how he reminded them in verse 7 to to basically to leave with God what belongs to God. And church, do we not need reminding of this that, that our days are in God's hands, not the other way around? I mean, if we just pause and think about how many people over the years have totally disregarded this verse. Claiming to know times or seasons that aren't for us to know because only the Father has fixed the times and seasons by His authority alone. How foolish, really, How foolish we are to preoccupy ourselves with trying to figure out what belongs only to God when we should be doing that which He has already revealed. So basically, Jesus told them to stop viewing things from their limited perspective only and not think mainly about their kingdom but His. And with verse 8, he totally reset their priorities. Again, the key verse to the entire book. 
This verse right here, verse 8, is what explains everything that follows. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Instead of restoring the kingdom of Israel as they were expecting, Jesus sent them out to advance the kingdom of God. What do we mean by advancing the kingdom of God? We're not really talking about territory, per se, but about God's all-surpassing reign in the lives of individual people. About men and women who gladly submit to God's authority and rule. When we pray that for God's will to be done on earth as in heaven, that's what we're praying for. For people, men and women, individually to embrace God's will for their lives because to the extent that you embrace God's will for your life, God's kingdom advances. Now, how do people begin to embrace God's will for their lives? I mean, we're getting to the nitty-gritty here, the basics. First, by coming to trust in Jesus Christ as Lord. You cannot claim to be in God's will if you are not surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. He is Savior because He saves us from sin and its consequence, but He is more than Savior. He is Lord. That's why the Bible teaches us to follow Christ. It's saying that it's more than simply professing Jesus. It's following Jesus. And following Jesus is to characterize our lives. The way we spend our time and money, the things we say or don't say, the things we do or don't do, all of this testifies to who or what we follow. So these apostles here in Acts chapter 1 were to advance God's kingdom by being witnesses for Christ by the very practice of their lives, by the way they lived, they were to testify that Jesus is Lord. They were to be His witnesses locally. Notice Jerusalem. Regionally and nationally, that's Judea and Samaria. And then globally to the end of the earth. And this is exactly what we find as the book of Acts unfolds. Acts chapters 2 through 7 are about the church's witness in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 12 are about the church's witness in Judea and Samaria. And chapters 13 through 28 are about the church's witness that began to extend to the ends of the known world. What began with only a handful of men and women who simply trusted Christ eventually impacted the entire world as the good news of the Christian gospel spread like wildfire.
but key to all of this was the presence and power of the Spirit of God. It was the Holy Spirit who transformed the minds and hearts and lives of these early followers of Christ. It was the Holy Spirit who prepared the way of the gospel. It was the Holy Spirit who prepared the minds and hearts and lives of those who would hear the gospel through the witness of the church. It was the Holy Spirit who saved lost sinners to Christ and the Holy Spirit who formed Christ-like character in them. Those who gathered with Jesus that day were told to wait for the Holy Spirit and they were assured that when the Spirit came, He would empower and enable them to witness in His name. I love this. The words, you will be my witnesses, are not a command. It's not, you will be my witnesses. Uh Uh-uh. It's a promise. Jesus is saying, listen, when the Holy Spirit grabs hold of your life, you will be my witnesses. Their job, we need to hear that. I need to hear this. Their job was not to muster the courage or manipulate the conversation in order to share Christ. Aren't you tired of doing that? as if it depends on you? No, no, no. Their job was simply to trust in the Holy Spirit and obey Him as He led them. Isn't it amazing to think that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, (laughs) handed off His ministry to a small band of flawed, finite, feeble people. They were unrefined, largely uneducated, common, average. They had no poll to speak of, no real influence, no hear this, no societal capital to leverage. Quite the opposite, really, because many of the same people who'd gone after Jesus wanted them out of the picture, too. So, of course, from our vantage point, we know what happened. We know what became of this ragtag bunch and the places to which they were sent. But put yourself in their shoes at that time, I venture to say that entrusting Christ's ministry into their hands would not have seemed like a very good idea to us. And in this we find something really powerful and beautiful that we're going to see time and time again as we journey through this book. So I want to encourage you by the authority of God's word and by what we see in the book of Acts as it unfolds that who you are today needs not define you forever because Jesus Christ changes lives. 
And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and begins to live in you, you will be you will be you will be transformed from the inside out. If you've ever thought that you can't change, oh, I'm just wired this way. You don't know my background. If you've ever thought that you can't change, you can. That's what the book of Acts is all about. It's what our Christian witness is all about. Yield to the Lordship of Christ. Change begins there. Yield to the Lordship of Christ. Live by the Spirit of God and be amazed by what He will do. Church, the greatest and most effective witness you can ever provide for those around you is one of sincere amazement and appreciation for what God has done and continues to do in your life. When you're at storming power of God. I, I love that. Uh, we don't know his name. I love that unnamed Individual in John chapter 9, a man born blind, Jesus gives him sight, and then he's brought before the Pharisees, and they're just basically interrogating him, wanting to know what's going on. And I love that he said, Listen, I don't know this guy as well as I could or should. What I know is I was blind, and now I see. <laughs> when you are out and about, rubbing shoulders with the various people in your life, that's the essence of your testimony. You are evidence of what God is doing in this world. Our witness collectively as a congregation of Christ followers, will be effective only to the degree that we continually embrace the transformative work of the Holy Spirit in our midst. Now, I suspect that some of you are getting really uneasy because the Holy Spirit freaks people out. We're very comfortable with the Father. We love the Son. If it were up to us, we might go something like Father, Son, and Holy Bible. <laughs> what we're going to see as we walk through this book, we're going to see the Holy Spirit do His thing. And we'll learn along the way what parts of it are prescriptive and what parts of it are descriptive but I want all of it I want whatever the spirit of God has for me and for us as a church because what the church what the church needs today including our church is exactly what the church needed then we need to trust and obey believing that God is at work and incredibly he has invited us into it. 
The power is from the Spirit of God. The purpose is to witness to the saving, redeeming, restorative work of the Son of God. The plan is to do this in places locally, regionally, and nationally, and out into the far reaches of the globe. This is what it means to be a community for the cause of Christ. And when he had said these things, verse 9, as they were looking on, he looked up and a cloud took them out of their sight. Let's pause right there because I don't know about you, but if I was one of those apostles and had been there when Jesus had said these things, I would have had questions. Lots of questions. I would have wanted to make sure, very sure, that I heard him correctly. Did I catch that right? And then I understood exactly what I heard. But from the look of it, it doesn't seem like there was much time for questions. In verse 8, Jesus says, The Spirit is coming, you'll be empowered, and you'll take my gospel to places near and far, reaching people in my name across the world. And with the very next sentence, verse 9, he's gone. I picture them being in complete amazement. Not the kind of amazement that comes over you when something really exciting has just happened or is about to happen. No, no, instead I picture them being in that state of amazement that is more like utter confusion about what in the world just happened. I think they're dumbfounded. Their heads are spinning. When verse 10 tells how they stood there gazing into heaven, I think it means basically they froze. I picture their mouths gaping wide open, their eyes glazed over, literally wondering what had happened. I think the appearance of these two angels, the two men in white robes, is very telling. Because when they ask, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? It's it's as if they had to snap them out of it. And I love how the angels got them moving again. Men of Galilee, they say in verse 11. This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go. Now, what do they mean by this, and what did it mean for those apostles? I think it was meant to motivate them. to assure them to impart courage and hope Jesus would no longer be with them exactly as he had been he would be with them in the spirit which meant that when they were in Jerusalem he was there with them when they were in Judea and Samaria he was there with them When they were out into the far reaches of the world, He was there with them. He was there with them all, at all times, in all places, simultaneously through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is with His people always, never to leave or forsake them. He is with us today, and He is with you today, assuming that you know Him as Savior and Lord. And one day He will return from heaven to earth to right all wrongs and restore all things to gather with us and forever be with 
all of his people from every place and time. So let the hope of Christ's sure return motivate you as it did these men in Acts 1. The presence and power, the promise of the Holy Spirit, coupled with the sure hope of Christ's return, is more than enough. Listen, he's basically saying, I've prepared you for this. I'm giving the Spirit to you. And I'm coming back. So go with the Spirit. Jesus is alive. Church, Jesus is alive. He is ascended and is Lord over all. He is King of kings. Lord of lords. And He is advancing His heavenly kingdom here on earth, choosing to do so through us, His people, as we live in the power of the Spirit of God. witnessing to the wonders of the Son of God while waiting in hope of His sure return. in so many ways these things are they just seem so far beyond us because we know who we are we know how flawed and frail and finite and fragile and feeble we are and so I would ask that today this week and in the weeks to come Will, will you just continue to teach us and encourage us and remind us of the gift of the Holy Spirit that we would walk in step with the Spirit of God day by day, taking part in this great work to which you have called us for the glory of Christ and for the good of His church here locally and regionally and nationally and to the far ends of the earth. Do this, we pray, for your name's sake. Amen.